Today, the workplace is more dynamic and diverse than it's ever been. Four generations coming together to contribute to our economy's growth. But new challenges in the workplace are growing each and every day. This podcast brings corporate leaders to you, sharing solutions and strategies to enhance your company's culture and bring your people together. Rise Up For You presents its newest podcast series, Workplace Solutions, People Matter. All right. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome, everybody, to the Rise Up For You podcast, Workplace and Business Solutions. Most of you know me. I am Natalina Nasruddin, founder of Rise Up For You. And please, please welcome my guest virtually, Jim Kramer. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It is such an honor to have you here, and I'm very, very excited to talk with you today. But before we jump in, why don't we let our audience know a little bit about who you are and what you do. Brag about yourself a little bit, Jim. <laughs> uh, sure, I can, I can take the whole podcast for that if you'd let me. Uh, <laughs> I, the last uh, six years I've been with Shamrock Foods Company. I've been their vice president of people operations. So I'm in charge of you know, uh, uh, talent acquisition, which is a lot of what we're going to discuss, I think, today. Uh, and uh, uh, employee relations, safety, that sort of thing. I'm actually transitioning out of Shamrock, not a bad thing. Uh, uh, Shamrock's transformed their human resources division over the last six years. And I love the transformation process. And about a year ago, I let them know after consulting with my boss, my wife, uh, that I'd be looking for another organization that needed to transform. So um, I'm not, but one of the things that I did to transform Shamrock is what we're going to talk about, I think, today. And I'm very excited about it. Yeah, so let, let's talk about that. I know, you know, just kind of talking beforehand, one of the big things right now, I mean, I think globally is just talent acquisition. It's finding good talent. It's keeping good talent. How do we do that, you know, in a virtual space? How do we do it without having like unconscious bias or, you know, predetermined thoughts and beliefs about certain people and that kind of thing? So let, let's jump into that because I think that even with our clients, it's a really big topic right now. And I'd love to touch upon it and get your professional you know, expertise on that. So you know, I'm gonna pass it over to you to start where you think it's best. Love it. I, I can tell you, I think, I feel like I tripped across the secret sauce accidentally. And what I'm gonna share with you and your listeners is counterintuitive to the way almost everybody uh, approaches talent acquisition and talent retention. And I tripped across it when I was teaching at Belmont University. I was trying to help students understand how spotty selection can be. And I ended up creating a scatter diagram that showed a fictional uh, diagram of uh, people who had been interviewed with as valid as possible an interview process, which is typically about a 0.25 correlation. And then that correlated with their uh, future performance, right? And what you end up okay. with in that scatter diagram looks like a sneeze on a chalkboard, right? It's a mess. And that one visual really helps us to understand that our predictive ability at its best is very, very weak. It's not worthless. It, it, it has a lot of value, but it's very weak despite what we think. And there are a lot of cognitive biases that make us believe we're better at it than we actually are. And once you realize that, you realize that you should change your approach both to selection and retention um, because you've been relying on your, your intuition that you're good at what you do. And, uh, and, and in fact, you're not particularly good at it. So if it's okay, I, I've got a great example that helps. To illustrate. Jump into it. Yeah, please. 
So what, what I used at Shamrock was an example I pulled from the NFL. I would talk to, and, and you don't need to know football to, to understand this. Anyone will follow along. Uh, you know, when you think about how you select to fill a position, you probably do an assessment or two, you do some interviewing, you may have multiple people do those interviews, you kind of get together, review the resume, you make a decision. And so I would ask uh, trainees to think about what does the NFL do before they draft for multi-million dollar players, right? Well, consider what they're looking at. They've got the combine where they're looking at how fast people run, how they catch, how they jump. There's even the Wonder Lick intelligence test. They are uh, reviewing their job performance, probably since middle school. Every game has been videotaped, right? They, are, they have an army of scouts. They have a mountain of data. And so they have an enormous opportunity to look at reams of data to make multi-million dollar decisions where you and I are conducting a few interviews and crossing our fingers. And so then what I would tell people is this is why the NFL is almost perfectly accurate at predicting who will be great. And then people who know the NFL and the, uh, and the scouting process start to laugh because the NFL is perfectly atrocious at guessing who will be spectacular, despite the fact that their process is much more expensive and much more buttoned down than you and I would ever be able to afford. And the proof that I give for that is that I went to a website, cbssports.com, and I looked at every player that they listed as the top 25 to ever play the game, right? These are the top 25 people, the Brett Favre's, the Jerry Rice's, these are the, the Eli, or uh, Peyton Manning's rather, Eli wasn't on that list, the Tom Brady's. And then I looked at where were they drafted? Because not a, we would expect them to be drafted first, second. I mean, these are the best people to ever play, and they're really only being drafted against the other people available that year. And what I found was that on average, the best to ever play the game were drafted 63rd in the year that they were drafted. 62 people were drafted in front of them, despite the NFL's exhaustive selection process to find the best of the very best. Tom Brady was drafted 199. 198 people I'm sure I could not name were in front of him in the draft. And he's a household name everywhere in the United States. And, and that is proof of the fact that we are not good at predicting future performance. And if the NFL can't get it right with all that they're doing, how on earth can we hope to be perfectly or even reasonably accurate with the very limited resources we have to make those decisions? That's right, yeah. So where, so now I, I, I hear all of that and it makes so much sense. So now I can imagine people are watching this or saying, I give up. Yeah, <laughs> so where do we, like, where do we start? How, how do we find a selection process that is, that's realistic, you know, and that can get us as close to the mark? What, what where do we go from here? I will tell you this, we don't change the course. Uh, my, my little lecture there wasn't uh, a shout out to the NFL to tell them, hey, just start drawing names out of a hat. Because obviously 63rd is a whole lot better than 363rd, right? Sure. So they're making the best decision they can. And, and I believe that most people, most of us in organizations are the making the best decision we can. And we should continue to do that. Everything we can to make the best decision we can. The example I give is this, imagine this. Now imagine that. Uh, I randomly selected a thousand students, let's just say out of the Los Angeles uh, County school system. Well, LA isn't even a county, but you get my point. Uh, so a thousand who graduated high school uh, 20 years ago, 
and a thousand who graduated high school and then went on to get a bachelor's degree 20 years ago, and a thousand who did the same thing got a master's degree. And I asked you to guess which group has the highest average salary. I think you and I would both be, hands down, it'll be the ones with the master's degree. And the second highest average salary would be the bachelor's degree. And the third highest will be the high school. And, and I'm almost certain that we're going to be correct. But if I selected one person from each of those groups, you, you guess master's degree, but you'd have no idea. And in fact, if I said, you can either have the guy with the master's degree or the two students who have either a bachelor's or, or high school diploma, which one do you think? I would guess the other two just out of numbers. Selections the same way. Over time, buttoned down valid selection has enormous impact on your organization. But in individual situations, it's almost a crapshoot. It's a little better than pulling names out of a hat, but it's not dramatically better. And the energy and especially the time that we spend trying to find the right person using very weak predictors is a mistake. And so we, we spend a lot of time being very tight in our selection, right? We want to make the perfect choice. And consequently, we're very loose on our retention. Once we bring somebody in, we allow, you know, problematic behavior and subpar performance in no small part because it was so hard to find them. And also because we, we aren't fully staffed in a lot of cases. And so we kind of have to live with that. And my pitch is that we should be doing it the other way around. We should be less stringent in our selection, we should get more people in the door or make quicker decisions when you're only hiring one and then make things more accountable once they're there and you can actually see if they can perform the job. That's the switch we should be making. So it's not about being better at selection. We should continue to be as good as we can be, but it's about having less faith in our ability to make these predictions and having more faith in our ability to determine once somebody's come in there. The phrase I've heard once that I really liked was, Hiring is guessing, but firing is knowing. And I'm not talking about churning and burning people, but I am saying that you know, once somebody comes on and they've had an opportunity to shine and you've poured your, your energy and your, your training and your coaching and your onboarding into them, when that's obviously not working out, go back, right? Stop punishing yourself for making a bad decision because you're using a very weak tool. So we're in this, you know, because I'm, I'm a huge advocate for soft skills and EQ, and I really think that it should be brought into the recruitment process. What is your professional opinion on that? Like, where do you bring in some of these other skills early on to see if they're going to be a good cultural fit? If, you know, if they have some sense of integrity as a professional, what does that look like? I, I like the, the typical practices of assessing those things. Uh, mid to late in the selection process, I think that there's real validity around the uh, kind of ownership mentality that people get. Once I, I feel like I've made that connection, I understand that assessment. So I'm more likely to make you successful once you've been onboarded, just by virtue of the fact that I understand how you think and, and, and how you operate. Uh, and I think it has real application in the onboarding process. So, you know, it, it helps us to kind of relate and talk to one another. Uh, so I think there's a lot of value in that. Uh, I, I, I think that, uh, you know, organizations to do their best to assess cultural fit without question. But again, to my earlier point, when it becomes obvious that that cultural fit isn't occurring once the person has come on board, because part of it for me is about inclusion, right? One of the concerns that people have is I, I don't want to hire somebody who won't work out. And I, and I understand that. But my pitch is I don't want to fail to hire somebody who will work out, right? Is it more fair to you 
that I bring you on and when you're not ultimately working out, I, I let you go? Or is it more fair to you that I decide using a pretty spotty process pre-hire that I don't think you're gonna work out and you never get the opportunity to shine, right? Uh, mm -hmm. That's where I think that focus needs to be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is there any data, and there might not be, is there any data this with this principle on like turnover and like what the cost is in accordance to it because i i can i'm i always play devil's advocate and i'm and i could hear some you know executives now saying well then my employee turnover rate is just you know potentially you know going to get higher and higher you know i'm just i'm thinking on that extreme so just out of curiosity anything of that sort I can use my experience working for Shamrock uh, to, to illustrate, right? So we went from an organization that that was very tight in selection and loose on retention, right? And in switching that, which as you might imagine, doesn't happen overnight. This isn't a eureka moment where I tell people this and they go, oh, I'm just gonna start operating differently. We had different uh, processes in place to make sure that that happened. And what happened with our turnover uh, even I didn't anticipate it. Well, at first it went up because of course it did. When people came on and we ultimately realized that they weren't going to be able to perform to our standards, we let those people go. But ultimately it reduced even below our turnover rate pre-hire. And I attribute that to a couple of things. One is that I think good associates like working for an organization that doesn't tolerate bad associates. So if you work for an organization that indiscriminately fires people, you, you know, you'd be looking over your shoulder all the time. But if you're a strong employee and you realize that the organization doesn't retain employees that aren't doing a good job, you feel even better about working there. But the other reason I think our turnover was reduced is that our our supervisors and managers became even more focused on the onboarding part. They had to get to know people. They had to understand them. They had to train them. They had to be sure because it wasn't just throwing them to the wind and hoping they would work out. They were going to sit in a room with us and we were going to discuss their success and failures. And ultimately we may, you know, do the economic death penalty, if you will, of, of terminating their employment. And that's not a decision anybody with a conscience takes lightly. So our supervisors did an even better job of onboarding precisely because they knew the consequences if someone didn't work out. I think that's very important. So, I mean, those, those two points right there are going to be key and critical is that if there is going to be this adjust, adjustment and in firing or uh, sorry, recruiting talent and getting, you know, the right people, there's got to be some work done to set them up for success. Otherwise, it's just, I mean, it, it's going to explode on a multitude of levels. So I, I think that you're you are right there. This has been really quite interesting, Jim. Thank you so much for sharing. I know we can probably talk for another hour. I'd love to jump into the power section of the interview. Okay. And I always love to, and there's just like rapid questions. So, you know, just that, you know, a couple words and whatnot. I'd love to ask you. If you were to leave this world with one final message, we call it the golden nugget. What would your golden nugget be to everyone? Wow, one final message. That's way too much pressure. Uh, I, I would say my golden nugget for at least what I'm talking about today is to challenge your confidence in your ability to predict the future. Stop, stop being so sure that you have a strong eye for talent. Uh, there are a lot of different things that make us think this way. Uh, but one of them is, is the fact that we, we look backwards and we revise our memories depending on, on, on particular outcomes, right? So if I hire you and you work out, I remember that I was certain that you would. And if I hire you and you don't work out, I'll remember that I had some real qualms about you before I made that decision, right? All of this psychology works to reinforce our belief that we're strong predictors and we're not. So 
have, and by the way, there's a liberation in having less confidence because when you're less confident in your ability to predict, you also punish yourself less for making mistakes. Mistakes are inevitable when it comes to this kind of selection, right? So be more open and more inclusive to folks and give them an opportunity. Challenge your confidence. Your confidence. That's that's my message. So we we actually have a question which I I would love to read because it's a great question. So addressing and talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion DEI, which you know is a big topic, and um, you know there tends to be this this what we call tokenism, which you may or may not have heard of in the industry in, in the workplace, which is hiring based off of race, gender, color, identities, that there is that diversity person, right? Which is something that obviously we don't want to do. So how do we decide, right? How do we decide how to hire and hire based off of skill and merit versus race, gender, color, or identity? Like, what does that look like? Ultimately for me, the beauty of the approach that I'm pitching is that it's, by its very nature, more inclusive, right? And uh, Rory Sutherland wrote a book um, called Alchemy, which is my favorite book in the last five years. And he actually talks about selection. And he says, think about this. If I assign 10 people to hire one person each, all of them would have this narrow focus of what they want. And they would get 10 carbon copies, which really goes against diversity in all forms, right? We get 10 Yale graduates with perfect, you know, whatever. But if you tell one person to hire 10 people, by virtue of the fact that they're bringing on 10, they'll make more diverse choices. And, that, and that's kind of what I'm pitching here is, you'll take some chances, which really aren't that chancy. You just think they are, because you think you have a strong eye for talent. Uh, if you are more inclusive in who, in who you hire, and then hold those folks accountable once they've been brought through the door. So I, I think it has an enormous impact on DEI initiatives. Yeah. That's a, a great point. Thank you. And we'll definitely have to um, address that even more at a later time. Okay, so question number two, what would you say is your number one value non-negotiable? <laughs> uh, I, I love challenging conventional wisdom. I love looking at something and saying, you know, is this, do we believe this because we've always believed it? Is it still true? Does it work here? Everything's contextual. So I, I, you know, challenging conventional wisdom is what gets me energized and gets my brain clicking, even when conventional wisdom is spot on, which it often is, but it often isn't, right? Yep, and final question, as you know, we are rise up for you. What comes to mind when you hear that phrase? I mean, when I hear rise up, that for me, that's continuous improvement, right? And uh, rise up for you, I like that it's it's nebulous. It's not rise up for yourself, right? So it's continuous improvement for you. It's continuous improvement for everyone else, right? And, and, and you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. So, you know, as you're improving yourself and others, they're improving themselves and you. Uh, I, I think it's just a, a big integration of continuous improvement. It's a great message. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Jim. It's been such an honor to have you here. Where can we learn more about you? How do we connect with you on LinkedIn? Where can we find you? Yeah, you can definitely find me on LinkedIn. I'm like Jim Cramer 9 or something. I'm not hard to find. You'll you know, look for Shamrock, <laughs> look for Jim Cramer, you'll find me. Uh, I'm happy to connect with people. I love to talk about this stuff. So uh, anybody who's got questions or thoughts is welcome to connect with me. And I, I will be happy to share my, my time and thoughts with them. I, I love talking about this stuff. Absolutely. Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. 
And thank you everybody for joining us and listening to us. I know we are in two places. We are here on the podcast where you can listen to us live on every podcast major challenge and platform. And then of course we are here on LinkedIn Live as well as YouTube. And again, my name is Ned. This is the Rise Up For You Workplace and Business Solution Podcast here every Wednesday. And again, thank you, Jim, for joining us. It's been an honor. Thank you, Ned.